Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the LSE. I'm Denisa Kostovicheva. I'm a senior lecturer in the government department and research fellow at Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit, which is hosting this event. It is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Ed Valiami, who writes for The Guardian and The Observer, who is an award-winning journalist, having been named International Reporter of the Year twice, and who has, among uh, many of his other distinctions, an Amnesty International Media Award. It is uh, very special for me to introduce him tonight, because I met Ed for the first time some 20 years ago, and uh, actually 20 years is the anniversary of uh, the Bosnian War. So it was just a little bit less. It was towards the end of the war at a talk that he gave then at Cambridge University, and I still remember. And I remember that uh, uh, talk because there was, uh, it was the end of the war, and I think that there was sort of an intense feeling of incomprehension at the scale of atrocities in Bosnia at the time, but at the same time, an intense feeling of incomprehension at a lack of Western international intervention. And of course, for all of you who are familiar with Bosnia, Ed Buliami is someone who told the world the story of those mass atrocities that, that took place, uh, having written about uh, the camps uh, run by the Serbs, where thousands of Muslims were detained, many of whom were tortured and uh, killed. And not only did he tell the story of this atrocities to the world. He was also a witness at an international criminal tribunal in The Hague. As I said, uh, he has, he's a journalist, but he has also written <coughs> several books, and uh, academics uh, could envy him at this uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, series of books that he's written. The first was on uh, the war in Bosnia, Seasons in Hell, and uh, tonight he revisits uh, the Bosnian theme uh, following his latest book, The War is Dead, Long Live the War, Bosnia, the Reckoning, which has just been published. But his reflections uh, will draw not just on, on these works, but also his wider experience of new forms of violence in the world, and will also refer to his other book, A Mexico, war along the borderline. We've discussed that uh, Ed will speak about 40 minutes, and after which we'll open the floor for questioning. Please help me uh, welcome our speaker. So I never know whether it's a good idea to stand up. It doesn't give the impression of going to start breaking bread and pouring out glasses of wine. <laughs> um, yes, thanks very much. Uh, this, I think, will take about 40 minutes. I'm actually much more interested in the bit where we throw some of the ideas around, because I'm going to go slightly off into sort of outer space at the end, probably to the annoyance of others. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that, the time when we met in Cambridge, I know my favourite poem has always been The Ancient Mariner by, by Coleridge. I loved it when I was young as a sort of maritime adventure. And I, <clears throat> since the war in Bosnia, I've come to sort of identify rather with this, this man who goes around spreading tales of woe, pinning this, this poor wedding guest to the wall. Um, 
certainly wakes a sadder and wiser man. The morrow morn, more recently I'm starting to identify with a poor wedding guest, poor sod, he just went, you know, went to a wedding to have a nice drink and enjoy himself, perhaps meet a nice girl or something, and he ends up with this old git. Um, and sort of here I am again. <clears throat> that is why I appreciate you coming a lot, because during that, the time, during the war, one used to come back and address campus Bosnian solidarity groups and things, and you know, you'd have an audience of three or so. Um, and, you know, this was sort of baffling uh, and depressing. Um, uh, and now, what's interesting is there are, there are a lot of people who were either unborn or children then who are sort of thinking, you know, what? How could that happen so close? Although I don't think it matters that it's so close. I mean, Bosnia is not really any closer than Rwanda or Syria, really. Um, but... <coughs> You know, what was all that about and, and how could it have gone on so long for three years um, and uh, yes I mean this book could be about anywhere, it, it could be about Rwanda it could be about Syria in 20 years time but it just happens to be about the place that I ended up in, in for purely serendipitous reasons because I was living in Italy which happened to be next door um, that really is, is, was the starting point. I'm not a war correspondent. I hate war. I get scared. I loathe it, unlike many war correspondents who get a bit of a kick out of it. Um, but the proximity was weird. Uh, the day after we found the camps, a man called Nikola Koljevic, who was Radovan Karadzic, who's number two, the deputy president of Bosnian Serbs, took me out. He's an Anglophile. Um, took me out for English tea at the Hyatt Hotel in Belgrade and said, well done, young man. You found them, but it took you three months, didn't it? Uh, uh, and all that happening just so near Venice um, and it was resident I think the story in a way begins with, with Koljevic um, and his boss Radovan Karadzic have a lunch in Pale their, their, their sort of capital in a ski lodge up, up above Sarajevo I won't go into the whole thing now because I'm going to try and stick to this 40 minutes um, in fact if, if somebody could give me a sort of 10 minute you know like the fourth official you know the time remaining would be great because um, then I'm going to go off into orbit with my, my a few theories. Um, but we ended up being passed down the chain of command, literally and uh, physically, and, and in terms of that chain of command, until we walked through the gates of Camp Umarska, um, uh, where this scene, this site, which one had to sort of pinch oneself, men emerging from a hangar, uh, some skeletal, others not being drilled across a yard into a canteen. Um, it's nothing like the eyes of a prisoner who can't speak for fear of the guards' eyes upon them. But one man did say, his name uh, was Jamal Panatushic, I uh, do not want to tell any lies, but I cannot take, tell the truth. Um, we then went on, bundled into, uh, out of Omaska at gunpoint, um, trying to, to see the rest of the place. We saw very little. Apart from this canteen, these men wolfing down this watery bean stew. Uh, thanks. That's okay. uh, to another place, Turnopolye, where we pulled up and were sort of uh, beheld this sight of these men behind the barbed wire fence. Some skeletal, others not. I was surprised to see them as they were amazed, I think, to see us. Um, that was August the 5th, 1992, a day my life inevitably changed. If it hadn't, I'd be pretty weird. Um, 
Now, I don't want to go on and on about the war. It's difficult uh, uh, doing this because some people uh, will have been through it themselves in, in these audiences. Others will not but know all about it, and others will know very little about it but have the... Um, have a sufficient interest to be here. And it's that third, that last group, that I think it's important to address, begging the indulgence of, of those who went through it or know all about it already, uh, because I think it's, you know, now is a time to sort of bring people into this and, 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 and reflect on what happened. Although that's not all I want to do. Um, there was a plan for a greater Serbia. It was hatched in Belgrade. It had a kind of faux academic project and a political wing in the form of Slobodan Milosevic. Um, uh, it, it, the plan, the, the notion was that Yugoslavia was a sort of conspiracy by the non-Serb peoples of those republics to disperse the Serbs um, and that there, ne there needed to be this, this, this gathering of, of the Narod, the people, um, which is all very well, uh, uh, but the problem is once, once it sort of, well, there was a, there was a, there was a a war in Croatia for, I think, sort of, I, you know, I, I covered it by sort of mutual agreement. I felt that both sides were up for it. The Croats wanted their independence. They fought for it. Um, but when we got to 1992, um, this project involved cutting this great swathe of territory claimed uh, and the clearance from it of, of, of non-Serbs. Um, uh, the discovery of the camps, though, was not the end of the war. It, it was the beginning, to cut a long story short. It went on for three bloody years. It was uh, at best um, tolerated uh, and at worst encouraged as the West um, and the so-called international community, as it likes to call itself in its hubris and arrogance, um, adopted this important notion of moral equivalence. These were somehow perpetratorless crimes. There was no... There was no there was no victim or aggressor in this, uh, in this, and um, and for that reason, we later found out that, of course, uh, much as uh, the survivors like to say that ITN, Penny Marshall, and I discovered Omarska. Of course, we didn't. Uh, it was known about uh, widely throughout the corridors of power among the political, diplomatic, and intelligence communities. I wish someone would find another word to describe that filth. Um, but it was okay. It was permissible. It was. Uh, it didn't matter that, um, that, that this would. If it did, if it mattered, it didn't matter enough to do anything about it, let alone blow the whistle. The war ended. Um, uh, complicated circumstances, which I tried to deal with in the book. It was uh, uh, all wars turn. Second World War turned at Stalingrad and D-Day. This one turned too. It was stopped just as it was turning, in order to secure the Dayton Agreement of 1995, which had with it that inimitably British hallmark of partition, uh, other such blazing successes as Ireland, Cyprus and Palestine um, to rely on. This one over the last 20 years hasn't turned out to be much more successful than they. Um, uh, I wrote in another context in 2003 when President Bush declared the, the mission accomplished in Iraq that wars unlike football matches do not end when the whistle blows. Um, I find it harder to be more stressful being right than wrong in a few times in life when I have been right. And this one didn't end, for sure. Yeah, it's over, there's a peace. But I'm concerned with the people <coughs> whose lives were scattered and shattered by that war. Um, and that's really who the book is about. Two things happened. One was the, 
establishment of the Hague Tribunal. Um, I think maybe we can leave the bulk of that for discussion later, else we're going to get bogged down in a long discourse about justice, trials, and goodness knows what. But, um, and the other thing that happened to me was I started meeting the survivors and the bereaved. <clears throat> Usually, by accident, I spent a lot of the last 20 years trying to get away from this, uh, both geographically, emotionally, and a number of other ways, and it, it keeps finding me, um, right to the point whereby last year I was, took my daughter to Florida for a Harry Potter convention, as one does, and we've been on the We'd been in Miami on the beach for about 20 minutes before some girl came up who happened to be the daughter of somebody I'd been talking to who'd survived Omaska about two, three days before. You, there's no escape, at least not, not if you're me for some reason. Um, the Hague, it, it, there are all sorts of judicial issues which, which are, we can go into if you want. But in the interest of time, um, the, the bit that I want to focus on actually is not judicial. I mean, it was a strange institution. It was sort of schizophrenically established really out of both ambition and contrition. It was part of this zeitgeist of the time, the, the, bright, the bright new dawn of human rights and accountability and prosecuting in, uh, crimes against humanity and so on. I want to get to that later. Um, but it was also an act of contrition because the United Nations had done um, really nothing but deliver Bosnia to the slaughter for three years. Uh, I didn't talk enough about Srebrenica, nor do we really have time. Um, uh, but uh, if there was one episode that summed up the, the, the performance of the international community, as, it, as I say it calls itself, it was that the head of the United Nations Protection Force, my emphasis, um, uh, had, a, had, a, had a, a lunch with General Ratcom Ladic, a suckling pig, uh, uh, three days before um, um, Mladic moved his, his, his death squads and execution squads into the safe area, again my emphasis, of Srebrenica and, 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 and perpetrated the worst massacre on European soil since the Third Reich. That was the context of The Hague, so there was contrition too. You know, we, we messed it up so bad on the ground, so we'd better assemble a lot of lawyers and pay them a lot of money to do a different sort of job in The Hague. Um, but what was so interesting, and I'll go into testifying later if you want me to but in that that court in that courtroom something which, which for me was more interesting than the judicial process was happening and that was this extraordinary record for history of the testimony it was from the witness chair uh, that people summoned extraordinary courage to to tell the details the inards the day-to-day -day brutality and horrors of what was happening in, uh, in, in the camps, uh, in the rape camps that were that were that was established specifically for that purpose, using sexual violation as a, as a means of, of, of ethnic subjugation. Um, and this, in a way, was for me more interesting than, than the judicial arguments, which which are which are important too. But, but if we get bogged down in those, we'll never get we'll never get to the end of this, at least not in 40 minutes. Um, uh, there were a couple of observations I sort of that don't get talked about enough. Refugees are very interested in money because they haven't got any, and it was quite interesting to sit around in the in, in the witness room with these people. How much he earned for this? How much he, he money he get for say I am liar? And um, this was all very good stuff, I thought. I mean, um, no one ever talks about the money these people are earning. But the people with the receiving end from the witness box, they were sure interested. And in a way, there was much more discussion about how much these people were making than there was about what was actually done to them uh, in the camps. Um, I sort of went up the... became a bit of a sort of tribunal tart, really. I kind of went up the, the, the 
pyramid from Tadic through this man Kovacevic who I interviewed in 1996 and took this sort of extraordinary drunken confession um, but that's another narrative really it's in the book uh, uh, and I don't really want to talk about myself I want to talk about other people this life began with these survivors I never know what the word is I don't like victim uh, survivors and bereaved works <clears throat> since writing the book I interviewed Claude Landsman the director of, of the film Shoah the sort of nine and a half hour epic and he has a wonderful word revenant the returned dramatic because uh, it also means ghosts in certain contexts in French um, uh, and I you know my life began with these people I, 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 in 1993 I went to meet uh, Fikret Alic, the famous figure behind the, the wire at Ternopolye in Slovenia, and he said, I'm a man who talks to trees. And he was. Uh, he had a terrible breakdown. I met a, 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 a people who, as they came to settle in Watford, uh, poor souls. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, there is actually a marvellous line. I'm not going to start quoting from my own book. I think people should be, or writers should be shot for doing that. But there's a great bit where Edine says... Uh, so, uh, they, they'd been in Medivac from, from Omaska. He was on, they were on the flight, and he said, um, I woke up, uh, uh, a white ceiling and clean white sheets and silence for the first time in four months. I thought I'd died and been taken to heaven, but I hadn't. I'd been taken to Watford. But let's leave Watford alone. Um, uh, yeah, at the trial, the first trial at The Hague, I came down at breakfast, people picking rather nervously at this food as though it was laid out for somebody else, drinking coffee, chain-smoking, as you could in those days, even in Holland. And there was... A woman called Azar Blazevich. She was a vet who slipped us a roll of film in Tornopolia, which were the first images of the, of the beaten and skeletal corpses in the camp. Um, in the late 1990s, uh, ITN fought a court case against people who, who, who insisted that we'd somehow sort of imagined and fabricated these camps for all that was being said in The Hague. And their witness, Idris Merjanic, the a vet, uh, sorry, a doctor working in. Um, in Tornopolia, who had communicated some of these horrors using sign language. It went on in 2004. I was at a meeting here in London and in walked Jamal Paradushic, the man who didn't want to tell any lies. I nearly fell off my chair. I didn't know whether his, his remark had, had saved or, 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 or ended his life. And it went on and on. Um, uh, a case, uh, a civil case was brought by, by a group of the violated women serially raped in Umarska. Uh, uh, and it it unfolded weirdly in, in New York and so there they, these women were at my birthday party in Greenwich Village and then we went to hear some jazz on the last night of their trial in Harlem. It, it, you know, my, these worlds that correspondents like to keep separate uh, merged f for me. Um, uh, uh, in St. Louis there, I, I met a chap who I, who, with whom I smoked my last ever cigarette in a trench um, uh, uh, while he was on a speaking tour. Uh, <laughs> This is their book, really, because they, 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 were, they are scattered across the world. They are largely forgotten. And if anything, the idea was to, and if it's not a, 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 a nonsense, to register their disappearance, to, to, to make sure that that voice does not disappear. And the ones who did be kind enough to interview be interviewed for the book, you know, stuck their neck out. They're incredibly brave. People don't like talking about concentration camps. It's not what you do when you survive. Um, uh, and, but but uh, there they are, the voices there. Um, but it was also to address this notion of reconciliation, because we hear this word everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Reconciliation, post-conflict resolution. 
It's, these are the buzzwords. These are, the, these are the, the, the raw material for a lucrative industry that now exists across the world. It's the, uh, um, uh, uh, and I insist on another word, which is reckoning. And we'll get to reconciliation in a minute. Reckoning is a whole different thing. It's not reconciliation. Reckoning for the perpetrator is an act of self-disclosure. It's coming to terms with what you've done. It is staring at yourself in the mirror. It is moving towards amends. To use the obvious but extreme example, uh, and I don't particularly like to, but there it is. It's, uh, like it's the 500-pound gorilla in any room about this subject. The Germans, I think, can be said to have reckoned with the Holocaust in as much as, uh, 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 in as, much as one can. Uh, the, the Shoah does appear in the book, and I, uh, I'm very wary that there is no analogy to be made. I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington and said, help me with the language. And a man who survived <coughs> two death marches and three concentration camps said, e I said, would echoes do echoes loud and clear? I thought, well, if that's okay with Tom Bergenthal, it's okay with me. Um, for the victims, for the survivors, the revenants, the bereaved, whatever they are, they are, we're going to call them, reckoning gives them back the history of what happened. Um, uh, it, 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 it enables uh, them to own the narrative, um, and, and while it doesn't bring back their dead, it does at least register what happened in history. And then there's this third constituency, who I'm afraid are underrepresented in the book, and, uh, and it was Landsman who sort of drew that to my attention. That's the dead, the loudest voice. Um, reckoning for the dead is finding them, exhuming them, giving them names, and giving them back to the living, utterly primal, um, and erecting monuments where the massacres took place, something that uh, you know, we've been doing ever since we stood up on the plains of Kenya and walked. Uh, and there is no reckoning. Um, from the perpetrators, from, not from all across the whole of society in Serbia. This is, this is wrong. This is not a, a, a racial discourse about who has reckoned and who has not. Um, but by and large, in, in Bosnia, in the Republika Srpska, the Serbian part of the partition, uh, there is this sort of crazy waltz between justification and denial. You know, we didn't do it. It was all a media conspiracy, but we had to do it because there was a jihad, but we didn't do it, but we had to, but we didn't do it, but we had to. It, it doesn't make sense. Um, for the, for the revenant, the survivors and the bereaved, uh, uh, if I can sum up what they, what they feel, which I can't, um, uh, uh, well, there is no reckoning at all. They have not, I don't think they feel they've been given back the history of this. I don't think there's any feeling on the, on the, um, on the, on the outskirts, the frayed outskirts of the cities of Holland, Germany, Britain, America, <coughs> and Denmark, where they live, that somehow, they, they have been recognized in any way. Um, Professor Paul Gilroy of this parish wrote a book called Between Camps. It's in a very different context, but it describes them perfectly, really, um, apart from the fact that many of them traveled between several concentration camps with buses at gunpoint. Uh, in Slavonic, Slavic Islam is a, is a, is a very complicated identity. Uh, rich in history, um, but but cast out in the modern world, in the in the Arab world, for want of a better, a more complicated and respectful way of putting it, the Bosnians, the world. I mean, they like a drink. They, they uh, uh, the girls look marvellous. So they're not uh, they're not exactly uh, uh, Mecca's idea. And I, I better not dot dot dot. 
not. I don't mean to offend anybody. But, but more interestingly, in Salt Lake City, when the Clinton administration wanted to, felt that the city was a little too kind of white, white bread for the Winter Olympics, uh, they decided, oh, but hey, we can get some of those Bosnian Muslims in to kind of, you know, to sort of, uh, you know, make it a bit less white. Uh, uh, I don't know whether the Bosnians regard themselves as, I don't know what colour they think they are, but I mean, it doesn't really matter. Um, the Americans made it quite clear what colour they thought they were by whenever they went to these cities, they were given housing in the ghetto. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a guy called Senad um, uh, uh, who came back to Kozarats, um, uh, having you know, been, I think, a pretty sort of sprightly member of a black gang in San Francisco. Um, he came back actually after his younger brother was shot dead in a gangland crossfire. Um, uh, it, it, it's a complicated identity. No reckoning whatsoever, no admission, no giving back the history, as I think one could say jury has quite rightly been given back the history of the Shoah. The dead, nothing. There is a miracle performed by something called the Institute, International Commission for Missing Persons, which has exhumed the graves, dug up the dead, has tried to give the skeletons a name or assemble the skeletons, um, but they meet with all the opposition you can. These, these people were buried in primary graves, taken to secondary graves, often to tertiary graves. So the same body can be in three different places. Sometimes you have a shoulder blade with a name, and you know, they have to work out whether the family can have it back and bury it. Sometimes you have a whole skeleton waiting for a name, uh, but, but they don't have much of a reckoning, the dead. In Omarska, by the way, there is no monument because uh, ArcelorMittal, the world's mightiest steel corporation, um, will not allow it. They insist on maintaining their neutrality. The neutrality that the international community demonstrated during the war, the neutrality uh, that I as a journalist am supposed to uh, 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 respect by not testifying in The Hague, which I do, and here we have corporate capitalist neutrality. Uh, today, by the way, is May the 9th, the day of the victims of fascism. The uh, survivors wanted to go into the Omaska camp today to, to uh, 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 commemorate their dead. They were denied access by Barcelona Mittal. Well, this isn't reckoning, and I would argue that there is, without reckoning, there is no reconciliation, and without reconciliation, there can be nothing that can properly be called peace. Twenty years on, <coughs> in Bosnia, a colonial stratum is in place, <coughs> made up, not entirely, but I'll stick my neck out, largely pretty mediocre individuals who live tax-free. Some of them even earn danger money in a place where a shot hasn't been fired in anger, or not in a, in a war, for two decades. Um, they've achieved next to nothing. Paddy Ashdown had his moments uh, firing police officers who were known killers. Um, and I, I can't recommend strongly enough a film called The Whistleblower, uh, which is about um, trafficking in young girls from Ukraine mostly and elsewhere for enslaved sex for the police officers and soldiers who keep the peace in Bosnia. But not only that, they are trafficked by the soldiers and policemen who are there to keep the peace in Bosnia. There's a wonderful woman called Madeleine Rees who works for a, a, a feminist pacifist organization in Geneva who said, so I went to Bosnia to work with the victims of mass rape during the war and I ended up spending most of my time working with uh, young women who were trafficked and serially raped by the peacekeepers. Um, uh, the, 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 we're going nowhere 
with this. Uh, this language of reconciliation, this sort of balm, these people who, I better not name who he is, but uh, one of these very senior diplomats, very wealthy man now, came to a, an Omaska commemoration one year. We invited him along. He was completely unmoved and then came, barged into our lunch and talked nothing about nothing but his children. No experience of the people. Now, I've, I'm just going to... Um, quote from my book, but not myself, God forbid. Uh, these, sorry, I should have got this. Um, Jean Améry was a uh, survivor of the Holocaust and um, wrote a, a, a wonderful book about uh, um, a number, a number of notes, and, and, and in that book is a chapter, cha- is a chapter called Resentments. And he says this, and I think he speaks for so many of the people I'm, I'm talking about when he writes as follows. It has reached the point where one must defend oneself for thinking this way. I know somebody will object that what I am presenting is barbaric, lust for revenge, but which I have merely disguised in nice or not so nice, at any rate, highbrow terms, but which has fortunately been overcome by progressive morality. When I stand by my resentments, when I admit that in deliberating our problem I am biased, I still know that I am captive of the moral truth of the conflict. It seems logically senseless to me to demand objectivity in the controversy with my torturers, with those who helped them and with the others who stood by silently. Amory also adds cogently, the experience of persecution was at the very bottom that of extreme loneliness. At another point he said, I do not want to become an accomplice of my torturers, rather I demand that the latter negate themselves and in the negation coordinate with me. The piles of corpses that lie between them and me cannot be removed in the process of internalization, so it seems to me, but on the contrary, through actualization or, more strongly stated, by actively settling the unresolved conflict in the field of historical practice. Jean Améry. That has not happened. Now, I'm going to broaden this out. Am I ten minutes, roughly? Right. We're going to... Bosnia, we can talk about any of the above as you wish. But I'm going to try something. I did a talk at Daunts the other day in Chelsea. Very nice people came. And there's a woman on my left who wanted some examples of vernacular uh, uh, cooperation. And I tried to talk about Tenopoli Football Club. I admitted that I hadn't camped out with, with groups of soldiers who, who, who are protesting in Sarajevo and I, I watched this look of sort of disdainful disappointment on her face as I failed to come up with sort of answers neatly packaged like politicians or, 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 or newspaper columnists um, and, and I'm going to sort of try and do two things at once really, come up with answers that aren't answers at all and more gratifyingly there was a review in the Financial Times of the book by a man called Eric Russell he said two things which I'm hugely grateful <clears throat> one of them unintended the first one described me arriving in the war with kind of long hair and a bag full of Beatles tapes manifestly unsuited to this appalling situation I'm very grateful to that, that's true but at the end he says I craved some statement about truth and justice um, um, instead of just ending the book in the pub with a bunch of people as I do I thought hang on Alan that's it, that's exactly it, you've got it we end up in the pub for a reason Okay, we're talking about two books. I've written two books in three years, and the thought of it makes me exhausted. Never mind, broke, sub broke. Um, in a Mexico, if I can switch gear a minute, um, 
I'm not going to talk about Mexico because then we'll get really confused. But but when you look back on what you've written, you you sort of you know it's reportage. Both books are reportage. It's it, it's 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 to philosophise at occasions like this, not not on paper in my case. What was that book about? Well, it was about the fact that I don't think a narco cartel is any kind of adversary of global capitalism. I think they're largely pioneers of it, integral to it. By the same token, secondly, I think it argues that it doesn't argue; it implies, it illustrates that any idea of a dichotomy between or friction between a criminal economy and a legal economy uh, is a lie. They are mutually dependent and they are inseparable from one from the other. Uh, there's a long section in there about a, a scandal of the Wachovia Bank knowingly laundering drug money. You're going to wonder where I'm getting, but I'm, I'm going somewhere. What it's really about, I think, the book about Mexico, is the lie of progress. The idea that things are getting better. Charles Bowden, great writer on the border, puts it like this. He says that Ciudad Juarez, which is the most dangerous city in the world and an appalling, as it were, epicenter of the Mexican drug war. Ciudad Juarez is not a breakdown of the social order. Ciudad Juarez is the new order. That's Chuck, bless him, with his mixture of apocalypse and, and whiskey, but I, I think he's onto something. Uh, the backdrop to that war are the slag heaps of capitalism, uh, the idea that this, this, as a corporation search for the bottom line of the lowest wage they can, that companies can pay, they leave behind them these monstrosities. And I think what's happening in Mexico is what war will look like uh, in the century to come. And once that spreads across the townships of Africa and inevitably into the sweatshop factory conurbations of Bangladesh, uh, 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 the mind, frankly, boggles. Um, the war is dead, long live the war, is in its way also about the lie of progress. Look at the buzzwords of our, of our era. The international community of nations, the, the, uh, the reconciliation argument that, I, that we can talk a little bit about later, um, and the condemnation of the people who actually survived this war, who have revenu from it, from the camps, into these, into, these, into these scattered communities across the world for all their efforts to rebuild their houses back home, incinerated houses which they have. Um, it's the same thing. It, it's a lie. It's the, the, that, that wonderful spiritual, there's a better world are coming. Well, there just, there isn't. Don't try and talk to those people and tell them that there's a better world are coming because they won't know what you're talking about. Um, and uh, it's very interesting, a, a, a criticism of the book, a very good criticism, came from a woman called Nijara Akhmetasovich, um, who said, Ed, you, people like you, you always write about Bosnia in terms of the legacy of Dayton, the partition, the failure of the return, blah, blah, blah. So our problems now, our crisis, the implosion of our society, are the problems of capitalism. It's heroin in Tuzla is the biggest problem, not uh, the search for the dead. Unemployment, the fact that, that, that Bosnia, like all the other countries of Eastern Europe, was liberated from communism right at the time during the most absurdly dogmatic economic free market lunacy. So they destroyed all their industry. They, you know, had they been guided by the Germans and the Swedes, they might actually be sort of making stuff, but they're not. She said, you know, talk more about this. And so the sort of the Mexico-Bosnia... Uh, 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 sort of directionless themes start to merge and what they share and this is my sort of non-conclusion if you'll bear with me, what they share what the move they, 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 what they move towards I think is, is this idea that I'm trying to grapple with 
with this damn thing, and, and, and Mexico to a degree, is this idea of telos, this idea of direction, of progress, of better world are coming. And what if that's at best a fantasy? And what if it is at worst a lie, a dangerous lie? Um, not just that time is not linear, it's circular, but we're actually heading to hell in a bucket. And, and nobody can quite sort of work out what to do about that. A capitalist has to insist that the more that markets open up, the more uh, 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 that free trade conquers, uh, well, China apparently believe it when we see it, it's progress, we're heading somewhere. Uh, what's left of the left, socialists as were, uh, the human rights movement as is, is completely dependent on this word progress if my employer the Guardian uh, sort of categorizes its audience as progress ifs. What's a progress if, if there is no progress? Well, actually, the Guardian would say that digitalization and, and going like this all the time with your life twittering and blogging away like a moron is itself progress. Well, I rest my case. Mon monotheist religions, you have to be heading somewhere, like the wonderful stained glass in the Cathedral of Chartres. It starts at the creation of Adam and Eve, and it ends up with the, with the Last Judgment. And in a way, there are cultural aspects of all this I'd love to go into, um, uh, which we can talk about later in discussion. But you know, back to Alec Russell and his criticism of the book. Thank you, Alec. I have no great statement about justice. I'm sorry, it's great in the courtroom. I testify, it's better these guys go to jail. But out there in the field, the Hague's remit, by the way, is to create reconciliation on the ground. It's a fantasy. Truth. Do I have a great statement to make about truth? I wish I could come up with one for that disappointed lady at Dawn's. No, truth is like those trafficked women, alive, but, uh, but uh, you know, not in a position to recover. Um, anyway, we're supposed to end these things on redemptive notes, aren't we? There is redemption in this book. I asked Fikret Alic, the man behind the wire, as we'll call him, Fikret, how do you survive? It's a stupid question to ask a concentration camp survivor. I asked a lady called uh, Helga Weisser-Hoschkova, uh, uh, about, about uh, uh, who has survived Auschwitz and she said to me, is that the question? And she was right <laughs> to call me on it. But Fikret's answer was great. He said, I survive because I am a man who laughs at the jokes which are sometimes more sad than funny. That is why we end up in the pub and not with a great statement about truth and justice. Thank you. <laughs> very much. I'm sure there will be lots of questions about all different issues that you raised from reckoning and unreckoning to uh, capitalism and etc. And the park. So uh, I'll uh, ask you to introduce yourself and uh, to ask the uh, questions. Okay, so I'll take a few questions at the same time. Yeah? Three at a time. And As then, you wish. Yeah? Yes, yeah, okay. All right, one question there. Okay. My name is Emsud. I'm Bosnian. If you could just please, we have roving mics, sorry. Sir. My name is Emsud. I have survived and lost contact with Dr. Ballard. I put this down because I might, might get overexcited talking about this. First, I want to commend you personally <laughs> and a few other people like Terry Lloyd, Martin Bell, Christiana Mapov for what they've done to bring out the truth about Bosnia. I've got a question related to concentration camps. Why do you think, when you and Penny Marshall found those camps, that there was a campaign against you 
person maybe to say that you fabricated those images and that those strategic camps didn't exist. When the fact is that now Lord Petty Ashdown visited me in that concentration camp and I talked to him, so he knew that it, they did exist. Do you think that it was just an ignorance of, by few individuals, or was it just one of the strategies that he gave? Thank you. Okay, uh, the lady there, just that. Um, not all cases of wars. Um, uh, brought out to the world a war uh, in a place, in a small island, and especially if it has uh, geopolitical significance, it can go on for a long time before the world comes to know about it. And even after the bombing and shelling uh, are thought to be over, the war goes on um, in um, many other ways, in low-level ways, they never die down. Uh, the three years, uh, the last three years after the civil war was over in Sri Lanka, much worse things have been happening. What can the world do about it? Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm uh, Michael Gavrilovich. Uh, I have followed this conflict, and I followed in particular, by the way, the trial of Mr. Milosevic at The Hague from the point of view of the defense. I was in contact with the defense lawyers. I haven't read your book, but I've gone to Amazon.com and read the product description of it. I'll just read one sentence from it. A hurricane of violence was unleashed by Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic and his allies, the Bosnian Serbs, in pursuit of a greater Serbia. In pursuit of a greater Serbia. Okay, and the question? That, that uh, sort of accusation has been around a long time. But Mr. Milosevic has been at the Hague, uh, Mr. Vuljami, where you have been. He's been there four and a half years. There have been 297 prosecution witnesses against him. He managed to bring 90 witnesses before he died or, according to some, has been executed. The prosecution on the 29th okay, of August 2005 dropped the case of Greater Serbia against Mr. Milosevic. Anybody who wants to check this can go on the site of the ICTY and check that for themselves. Mr. Jeffrey Nice, today Sir Jeffrey Nice, dropped it. So I as an individual and others, who should we believe? Do we believe the tribunal or do we believe you, the journalist, Mr. Uh, Mr. Vuljami, and other journalists who have written in the same way? What is this fantastic project of a greater Serbia? Okay. Maybe you can explain it. Okay, thank you for your questions. Yes. Would you like um, to take them one by one? Or yes, absolutely. Well, no, I think one by one, because they're, they're all quite different. Emsul Khalilip Dobrovich. Yeah, I think the denial um, was interesting. I mean, it, it's, 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 as, it's as, around, as much around now as it, as it, as it always was. In fact, it's more uh, 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 widespread now that somehow this was a fabrication, it didn't happen. I think... Um, I mean, it's a long, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. I think, in a way, the people involved fall into two rough categories. 
there are the people who supported the pogrom. Um, only they don't have the guts to say so. I mean, in private, they do. Uh, I, I've been leaked some emails in which they talk about obliterating the, the Croats and the Muslims and this kind of thing. I'm talking about living Marxism and their friends. Um, and so there's those people who, who basically thought it was a good idea that people like you should have been put in these camps and they'd do it again tomorrow. Um, there was a sort of, but then something more, you know, that's there's nothing really to be surprised about. I mean, nothing surprised me anymore. Uh, then there's another category of people who were the sort of the chatterati uh, dinner table <coughs> supporters of this, of this thing, who um, their support for it all baffles me completely. Um, you know, why uh, uh, people who deny concentration camps should find a sort of, uh, you know, I mean, th this stuff should be ridiculed out of court. Um, there's a rot in British society. There's, a, there's an ennui. There's a sort of dilettante contrarianism, maybe. Um, I really don't know. Uh, but, I mean, a lot of people are now recanting that. I mean, Faye Weldon was one of them. She keeps pretty quiet about it now. Um, uh, 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 John Simpson <laughs> of the BBC has apologised. Uh, but I think there was a sort of dilettante rot, a kind of London dinner table bourgeois fetid rot in this society which allowed this, this germ of revisionism to spread. Um, second question. I thought you would be talking about Sri Lanka um, before you, <laughs> you specified it, the small island, yes. Uh, I think this idea that, you know, sort of wars end, um, I mean, of course they don't for the people. And uh, in, in, in Sri Lanka, obviously, the, the, the war officially ends and then the killing starts. Uh, Iraq is the obvious example. Uh, mission accomplished. There were an appalling number of civilian casualties during the war in Iraq, the so-called thunder run into Baghdad, the, where they punched in and punched out again. I was, did a lot of work around the bus stops that were riddled with bullets and shells. But then the real killing starts after the war, when the mission is accomplished, when, when, when Bush, Cheney, et al. Have, have got what they want out of it. Blair, Blair, indeed. Um, uh, so, yeah, these things go on. I mean, my book is really about, it's about, it's about the, the more private ways in which they go on. I mean, um, uh, I, should, I don't want to give names to these people, but to me, some people are fine for a while, it, it seems. And then um, there's one dear friend of mine who, who, who cannot sleep all night, and then he goes to sleep for about an hour and a half at six o'clock, and then uh, you know, if anyone disturbs him, he's back in the camp. Um, there's another man who was young, he was only eight years old when he was in, in one of the camps, and um, he woke up one morning after 15 years, started babbling about the camp, and then Igor did this and then so-and-so, raped so-and-so, and, -so, and he does it all the time, all day, every day, he goes to sleep, wakes up, does it all again. He's in a mental hospital in Copenhagen. So that, I was working on that level. You're talking about the actual surrounding of the Tamils, the pounding of the, of, of the Tamils. Yeah, they go on. And, and sir, thanks for bringing this up. I, um, the, Milosevic never actually used the term Greater Serbia, you're correct, it was the Academy of Science who, 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 who profligated all this. But my main um, thing is, you, you know, this use of the term hurricane of violence. You see, I think that, I don't know, maybe I'm just naive, but see, I think if one group of people set upon another group of people because of an ethnic difference, burn their villages to the ground, uh, herd people into concentration camps, torture, rape, mutilate them, and then put them on enforced deportation marches of the kind that I went on 
I didn't see you there. Maybe you were there. Um, blow up their religious institutions, burn their libraries. I call that a hurricane of violence. I don't call it uh, a negotiated settlement. I don't call it. Uh, I call it a hurricane of violence. Okay, uh, we have a question, one question there. I just wonder, I think I admire your writings and your reporting. The, what is so wrong with uh, Serbian that they have never forgiven the conquest of Balkans by Turks? and in some respect uh, uh, the Muslim there, it, it overwhelmingly, like Nazis, you see, they didn't like Jews. Uh, it looks like the Serbian had the same mentality about a Muslim as the Nazi Hitler had against Jews. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I've got to be clear about, about something. Um, there is nothing wrong with the Serbs <laughs> as a people. I don't think there's anything wrong with any particular people that makes them any worse or better than the other people. Um, one of the little told stories of the war um, were the number of Serbs who actually fought with the, the Bosnian government side for Republican reasons, um, uh, especially in Sarajevo and Tuzla, uh, and fought heroically uh, against what they called fascism. Um, in the name of the Republic. Uh, their war was not an ethnic war at all. It was a war against uh, the, what I was attempting to call justifies the hurricane of violence. Um, and for that, they got very little thanks. I mean, the, 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 the gratitude deficit as, as, the, as the Sarajevo government became more uh, Muslim towards the end of the war uh, is one of the scandals of that war. Um, so, you know, and I, you know, so I don't I can't with respect agree that there's anything sort of wrong with the Serbs because there isn't. Um, what there is something wrong with is is the way in which um, at, and you know this is a this is a this is a this is a discourse as old as as old as, as, old as racism is how uh, especially with using modern technology and television political speaking and, and uh, rhetoric how you turn a sufficient number of people round to do, as you said, to, to and I use the word echo, I, I, I don't make analogies or com comparisons between the Holocaust and what happened in Bosnia, but you know, echoes is the word I'm allowed to use. And actually, very few Bosnians make an analogy, actually. They, they, in the book, I, we talk quite a lot about this. You know, we, we don't claim to be like Auschwitz, uh, but we had our little Auschwitz, if you like. And, um, uh, and, and you know, that's, that's the issue that one still grapples with. I mean, there's a book called Ordinary Men about the, 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 the police uh, death squads in Poland, which, you know, deals with this. You know, how does somebody, you know, sort of go out, kill people, put them in a, in a grave, in a, in a ditch, and come home and, you know, kiss the wife and kids and have, and, and have, have dinner and watch TV? Well, not exactly that, but... Uh, and this uh, is the mystery. One of the things that came out of the... Um, of, of the testimony uh, uh, is 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 the is the um, bafflement of the inmates of the camps that the people they knew were doing this to them. It was their teachers. It was the plumber. It was their villagers. It was their neighbours. 
Um, and this is where, you know, the imagination starts to fail, to be honest. Uh, but uh, what this one man called Kemal Parvanich, who makes the point that, you know, had they been strangers, that would at least have made sense to them that they were doing this to us, although not to us. But the fact that they knew who we were, that we weren't jihadists and we weren't what they said we were, made it all the, all the less comprehensible. But these issues, you know, again, I, 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 you know, I don't wish to sort of disappoint my hypothetical person who wants me to answer every question. I, you know, I don't know where we go with this. And, and as technology improves and it becomes easier to manipulate people, um, this, 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 will, this, 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 this question will deepen. Your, your question will, will become more cogent, I fear. Okay, have a one, two, three. Could you please introduce yourself? My, my name is David Harris. Um, thank you ever so much for that, Mr. Vuljami and uh, Professor Kostovichova. Um, uh, I, I was a bit disturbed um, at the time of the war, at the demonization of, uh, of Serbian people, and, and feel that that's a demonization that's continued and has not had a healthy um, outcome in, in, in the area. And I did feel a little that what you were saying contributed to that. Uh, uh, this is the question, is that I, I don't have any time for, uh, for Milosevic or Mladic or any of those people, but nor do I have any time for Franjo Tudjman or, or for, 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 for uh, Izet Begovic. And as I recall, the first pieces of ethnic cleansing in that area were the purging of Serbs from the Kraina region of Croatia. And this is what I want to know is, I heard this story, and I'm hoping that you can verify it, of the participation of the British government in this. I was told that uh, John Major, in order to secure the Maastricht opt-out, um, just prior to, uh, to, to the war, had done a deal with Helmut Kohl, that Helmut Kohl said, yes, I will okay the Maastricht agreement if you will keep Sturm and let me back uh, Franja Tudjman in, uh, in, in Croatia. And it was the cessation of Croatia from, uh, from uh, um, Yugoslavia that set up a paranoia and, and the consequent purging of the Serbs from Croatia that set up a paranoia amongst Serbs and the desire to create a Republika Srpska for all Serbs everywhere. And that Serbs subsequently have also, in Kosovo, for example, been, uh, been purged. Sorry if that went on a bit, no, but uh, no. it's a, an interesting question. I, I hope you can answer. Yeah. Okay, and then we'll do three. Yeah. Okay, we have hmm? Thank you, Mr. Biami, uh, Ms. Kostovicheva. My name is uh, Tate Petanovich. I'm a master's student here at the LSC of Conflict Studies. Um, moving away from the whole concept of Dayton and the war itself, uh, more to the current problems, as you yourself pointed out, the heroin. Um, I'm wondering, what's your opinion on, and how, do you think that this is one of the major issues standing in the way of uh, reconciliation or reckoning in Bosnia? Um, the nexus between organized crime in the country and various organs of the state and how this erodes or affects a normal functioning of the state in Bosnia. The mic is just behind. Just, just wait for a mic so everyone can hear. Uh, I was interested to hear you drawing a parallel between Bosnia and Syria at the beginning of your uh, speech. And I'm interested to hear to what extent you've 
think um, the experience in, in Yugoslavia and Bosnia should um, influence the rest of the world's response, sort of military or otherwise, to, to what's going on in Syria at the moment. Okay, thank you very much for bringing up the thing about Croatia. I mean, again, I said the same thing as I said to the gentleman at the back. I mean, I, you know, I don't wish to demonize any, any people. I mean, you know, uh, and again, you know, this, this was not the Serbs. So, you know, the, the, uh, I wish we had some people here, wonderful artist called Shroba Sedic in, in, in New York, Serb, for, for the Bosnian army. Uh, uh, and so on, there were loads of them. But the Croatian thing, yeah. Um, I think there was a difference between what happened in Croatia and what happened in Bosnia. Um, I think in a way, the Croatians fighting for independence and the Serbs fighting to stop that independence understood each other. They, they opposed and understood each other. There was a sort of a mutual, there was, an agree, no, there was a war. Um, the first ethnic cleansing was in Croatia, in both directions. The, I think that you're thinking of the ethnic cleansing of the Kraina, I think you're thinking of 1995, Operation Storm, when, uh, when um, the, the Croats pushed the Serbs out of the Kraina. Uh, but in 1992, uh, it happened both ways. Um, there was, there was ethnic, the first ethnic cleansing was actually a place called Ilok, uh, in the very far east of Croatia, when the Serbs uh, cleaned the village out of Croats. Uh, but there was uh, certainly some, some ethnic cleansing, it was Karadzic's term, by the way, um, of, of Serbs from uh, a Croatian town called Sisak. I mean, this goes to and through. Um, <clears throat> but one felt that the Croats were kind of up for this. They didn't want to be part of Yugoslavia. Most Bosnian Muslims, I think probably did, or at least in retrospect they did. It's a, it's a difficult one. The census is a complicated one. It's true that at the election, the whole thing immediately became you know, depressingly ethnic uh, in terms of the parties at that first election after independence. Um, and in the referendum, the Serbs boycotted it, so there was an overwhelming vote for independence. But on John Major and Maastricht, I've heard it too. I just don't know. Uh, 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 you better off talk to the people who cover the diplomatic beat, Misha Glenny, and people they know encyclopedically about this stuff. Uh, what I do know is that during the three years that, that Karadzic and Mladic were doing what they were doing in Bosnia, their hands were being eagerly clasped by Owen, Hurd, Carrington, uh, and the major administration. I mean, in a way, people who are filo-serbo think that the British government was you know, doing deals with the Croats. People who are filo-croato think they were doing deals with the Serbs. I mean, it's, uh, that's, that's kind of subjective. Perhaps both is true. Why not? The British are masters at this um, uh, in, in their vileness. Uh, but... Um, but I still have a big problem with, you know, Visegrad on the river there, uh, killing hundreds if not thousands of people on the bridge, herding women into, into a spa for mass serial rape all night, every rape, 240 of them uh, killed in that place, uh, uh, packing houses full of uh, largely women and small children in Visegrad, incinerating them alive. You know, I, I don't think it's demonizing anybody to have a problem with this. Um, uh, 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 and I do have a problem with this. Uh, and where that kind of activity is ethnically justified, and, and, and the people who are doing it are saying, ba, 
Gallia, which is an untranslatable word, roughly filthy gypsy niggers, Muslim, whatever. Uh, you know, I have a problem with that too. And you know, it, and and my, you know, from the ground where I was, yeah, I'm sure there were deals going. I'm sure John Major was cutting deals wherever he wherever he was. He didn't know what else to do, largely for corporate reasons. Um, Douglas Heard. Uh, as soon as he left the government, went straight to Belgrade and cut a deal with Slobodan Milosevic for NAT to privatise a Serbian telecom network for NAT West Markets. Um, uh, you know, he became the eminence grise of British foreign policy, and the other guy, as our friend pointed out, was indicted for genocide. He was not proved guilty. Um, he died in custody. But, uh, 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 but I do, ha you know, whatever, whatever the deals, I do have a problem with what was happening in Visegrad, Omarska, and, and, and elsewhere in Bosnia. You know, I, have a, I have a very major problem with it. Um, <clears throat> but that's not to demonize a people, as I keep saying. What do we have then? Uh, the nexus of organized Oh, yeah, well, thank you very much indeed. I mean, now we get to my kind of orbit towards the end of the, <laughs> the, end of the talk. Um, it's not just Bosnia. Uh, it's everywhere. Um, I get a bit sick of... British diplomats who score Bosnia, and you get all these sort of, you know, if you're an ambitious young Bosnian, you accept the colonial presence, and you and you go on about how wonderful everything is. Oh, it's great! We've been we've we've gone up from 3.4 to 3.5 on the democratic rating system. The, the British at the heart of the democratic rating system, um, uh, uh, while harbouring the city of London, which is the biggest laundering launderette for criminal money uh, by, the, by the various criminal organisations, sanctions busters, tax evaders in the world. Um, I highly recommend a book called Treasure Islands about how actually tax evasion is the biggest is one of Britain's last remaining and most lucrative industries um, <clears throat> you know, so, so yes of course your point is relevant to the Balkans I mean you, know, you don't need a gas station every hundred yards uh, in a place where there's any, a few villages um, and, and of course the criminal uh, 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 syndicates are you know, entwined with government but I think <clears throat> this is where I wanted to widen it all out you see I think this is global um, uh, there's a man called Antonio Maria Costa who posits, I think, very interestingly, that you know, without the four pillars of sanctions busting, tax evasion, arms, uh, gun running, and drug money laundering, the banking system would have failed even before it did. Um, uh, there's a man called Martin Woods who was my source on the Wachovia story, which I'll go into if people want to, but it's basically the Wachovia Bank, which is a middle-sized bank in, in, in North Carolina, um, <coughs> uh, uh, was found to have... Um, knowingly laundered $110 million, uh, small change, of, of Mexican narco cartel money, but have failed to apply the appropriate um, uh, 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 monitoring um, uh, strictures on $376 billion over four years, coming through little holes in the wall in Mexico called Casas de Cambio. Uh, um, and uh, my source, who tried to flag this up, was some problem here, was told to shut up. He was spat out by the company. I have to say, by the way, because I think this is being recorded, that, that, that Wachovia has since been taken over by Wells Fargo, who have cooperated fully with the investigation, and Wachovia is now in the clear, having successfully uh, had a sort of yellow card for a year, what's called a deferred prosecution, and, and is now clear of all charges. Um, small print, you know like those things at the end of the, of the drug adverts, the, the aspirin adverts in the United States. Um, no, but it's true, I have to say that. Uh, but you know, this is, this is the, the scourge of the Balkans, but it's the scourge of this effing country as well, and it's the scourge of, I mean, this is, this is the, the point that I don't make as clearly as this, but it is there un, under the riptide of the Mexican book. You know, the, the, the fantasy of the dichotomy between the legal and the criminal economy is one of the most sort of successfully peddled lies in, in, in modern global capitalism.
And of course, the Balkans pays the high, the high, the high price because there is the additional issue of the impact of war, um, the additional impact of the number of orphans, of, 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 the, of the ravaging of the economy, which produces the, the issues that my friend Nijara would much rather we were writing about. As you say, the heroin, the knife crime, the gun crime. But uh, you know, <clears throat> that just makes you know, Bosnia even closer to South Wales, Detroit, Peckham, and the rest of the, uh, and the rest of the world heading the way of Juarez, as Charles said. Which it is, while the criminals reap, reap, you know, reap the cream, legal and illegal. But you know, those criminals are the ones who are building gyms and basements and swimming pools in Holland Park. You know, they're not they're not just you know men with big suits in Moscow. Syria. Oh golly, Syria! This is a nightmare. <laughs> There was a case to answer, I think, for those of us who were as passionately in favor of intervention in Bosnia as we were opposed to the invasion of Iraq, which I was. You know, I think politics has to be relevant. You know. <clears throat> I mean, it's only since the 18th century that we've sort of come, come to this idea that you know, everything has to be always the same, whatever the, te whatever the template. You know, there, was a, there was a time when people recognized that not every situation is alike. Um, and I think motive matters, and the interests at stake matter. <coughs> I mean, the West had very little to gain out of intervening in Bosnia, and had an enormous, Dick Cheney had an enormous amount to gain with Iraq. Uh, Libya, we, well, the jury's out, but um, there was an interesting talk in, uh, uh, the other day in London when someone was talking about Gaddafi's zigzagging. Um, with regard to Blair and the relationship with Blair and all the Brits and the BP contract and suddenly the war on terror, press the pause button, you can have your bomber back um, if BP can get the contract. It wasn't Gaddafi who was zigzagging, he was just doing his gig. It was Blair and Britain and the international community and the oil companies who was zigzagging. Um, it's a terrible cop-out. Syria, I'm, just, I'm still grappling with it. I mean, Homs seems to be absolutely hor horrendous. And <clears throat> if Kofi Annan going in, him again, you know, Kofi Annan of Rwanda, as he's known in Africa, um, and his miserable failure and his didactic, deliberate non-intervention in Rwanda, which was as didactic and deliberately and neutral in that way that Britain was neutral during the Irish famine, um, uh, uh, if he fails again, <sighs> I hate to say it, you see, because I just loathe the military-industrial complex, but Homs could go the way of, of, of Bosnia, could it not? Um, and then one might just have to spit it out. Uh, I wouldn't go in tomorrow. And then this question of who does it. Is it NATO again? Um, look what a hash they made of Kosovo. Um, I haven't answered your question, have I? And I apologize. What do you think? Yeah, I think you have to. I mean, if Assad is going to flatten that place um, beyond the flattening of Grozny, I think the powers that be have got to think very seriously about how far they can twaddle around, to be honest. Um, and Bosnia will always have to be a template, but then so will Iraq. Um, and I'm, I apologize for the cop-out. You know, I mean, yet again, I'm in that situation. I was in in Daunts for not having the answer to the question. Um, 
you know, if I had to, if I had to ballot yes or no, bomb, bomb, bomb Damascus or not, I would probably say no for the moment. But then, uh, then in a way, I, maybe I tear up the whole argument all evening. Should Bosnia be a factor in the decisions? Yes, absolutely. Sorry, on that, clear, yeah. But I'd be interested to know what you think. <laughs> Hello there. My name is uh, Marco Gazic. I had a, a few questions, but I'll try and keep them as brief as I can. Uh, on the last point, isn't the treatment of the Serbs um, by the West really uh, historically designed to establish the right of the US and its allies to uh, attack anywhere, anytime, without uh, UN Security Council authorization, without the protection of international law, by demonizing a people and then attacking it. And perhaps inadvertently, haven't you contributed that, uh, to that with your talk of, uh, for example, Greater Serbia, which I'm pleased to see you've actually moved a little bit away from, because nobody, for the life of me, can quote either Milosevic or Sandu, the Serbian Academy, on this issue, I'll be very, if you can provide a quote, I I'll be very pleased to hear it. Uh, the other thing, uh, two other quick points, uh, the ethnic cleansing, who started and all that, first of all, it began in, 19, in, the, in the Second World War with the real concentration camp that was on this territory of Jasenovac, where uh, 800,000 Serbians and others met their uh, deaths in the most horrendous circumstances. Uh, in this war that we're referring to now, the Simon Wiesenthal Institute said that the first uh, ethnically cleansed uh, people were from Croatia, 44,000 of them at the start of the war. And my final question uh, to you, though I'm not sure that was a question, but here's one. Uh, once uh, the war started, um, it's difficult, some of those camps were brutal as hell, others were not quite so, but the point is it's difficult to know what the alternatives were to some of them. I know all three sides had camps and the other two had them throughout the war, unlike the Serbs. But in the case of Ternopolia, you've mentioned Fikret Alic, the man behind the barbed wire. I have to ask you, isn't it, wasn't it the outcome of the case in which uh, ITN was involved that in fact uh, it turned out that Alic was in front of the barbed wire, the TV crew were behind the barbed wire, and the case that lost living Marxism, the entire thing, was that they suggested that yourselves had made that mistake deliberately, as opposed to making an honest mistake and believing uh, that Alic and others were behind the wire. Isn't it in the fact that he was in front of the wire, not actually captive, because that Ternopolia place uh, was not like Omarska, was a place where there were refugees of Serbian extraction as well, and from where the prisoners could themselves go, or the, uh, whatever we want to call them, back to their homes to pick up occasional food and so on. So it wasn't Ternopolia an entirely different Thank case from Thank the way you. it's been presented? There was one behind um, the projector. Yep. Yeah? Um, hi, my name is Gustavo Silva, and well, people who were born by the end of the war, they are already now in their 17s, 16s. And have you came across some of this new post-war generation? And if you did so, uh, to what extent ethnicity matters nowadays in Bosnia? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all right. Hi, you mentioned Moscow before, and the US has been mentioned. Um, almost every election, national election, sort of east, southeast of Poland these days, um, see some kind of dichotomy between is it westernizing or is it sort of moving towards Russian influence? To what extent do you think um, Russian influence exists and to what extent it puts any 
um, sort of spanners in the work, so to speak, um, when it comes to any kind of reconciliation and reckoning? Do you think it plays a role at all? Okay, let's do it one by one. Um, <clears throat> part of the problem, I mean, the war, the Serbs were attacked by the West. Um, one of the interesting <clears throat> things about that, Mark, is, is I, yeah, in 1995, uh, there were some airstrikes. But between 1992 and 1995, um, there was no attack. Uh, it just carried on. There was the Vance-Owen plan, there were the safe areas, uh, the so-called safe areas. On and on it, it went. Um, <clears throat> and I don't really see uh, what you're referring to when you talk about being attacked by the West. Kosovo, I, you know, I am extremely ambivalent about. Um, but Bosnia, I mean, 1995, yeah, there were a couple of antennas taken out. Um, but I'm not quite sure what you're referring to in terms of the attack by the West. Um, Douglas Hurd, Malcolm Rifkind, and other people you probably admire um, did not uh, attack the Serbs. Uh, yes, Senevats, yeah, I was absolutely. I mean, it was a horrendous, horrific, and uh, and um, sort of uh, a blight on that on that territory. Um, ghastly and and. The, Croatia was propelled by much of those ideas in, it, in its quest for independence, no question. Uh, there's a survivor of one of the, some of those camps over here. You might like to discuss it with him. Those men behind that fence had been brought that morning from Keratam, a concentration camp where there were massacres, rape, appalling murders, and um, they were interned in Ternopoli. Uh If you think Ternopoli was some kind of refuge to which people could go, uh, yes, yeah, some went of their own accord because, as Karadzic told us, their houses were being burned down. Well, if your house is being burned down, you might want the safety in numbers. But you're sitting here implicitly endorsing torture, mass rape, girls, 13. There's a guy called Idris Merjanic, he's a friend of mine. He treated these women. He treated these beaten prisoners. What's your problem? I mean, Ternopoli was not as bad as Omarska. So what? Uh, it was from Ternopoli that people would, if deported at gunpoint night after night over Mount Vlasic, belched into Travnik, women, children, old people. Uh, why do you ha harbor a candle for these people? For this. You, you support it, I presume. As far as I'm concerned, if you've got the camp where people are going, the war is all around them, raging all around them, even if it's a, uh, not a nice place, you better to be there than to be killed outside. Some people no went for that reason. Others were frog-marched and taken there on buses. The, almost the entire population of a place called yeah, Gozarats was shipped to Tornopoli. There's a young lady here tonight whose mother is a survivor of Tornopoli. Uh, you spit in the faces of the dead, sir. I would watch it. And as for the barbed wire fence, it's no different from Ferdinand Leuchter and people talking about the thermal capacity of bricks in Auschwitz methodologically. It's the same argument. He was a prisoner behind a barbed wire fence, sir. Having been shipped from Keratom concentration camp, was then deported, and you're now going to tell me he had tuberculosis or was naturally thin. What, was it, are you? 
No, I'm not changing no, the you subject. Just, you, you got your answer, and we are going to move on to the next question. And you've next got your Republic of Serbs. The next question was about actually the young generation and what happens in this context, if I may introduce your theme of unreckoning. How do young people grow well, right, up? Is, this is really important because um, there are so many different pressures on the young people of Bosnia now. Um, there's the pressure of the generation that, that, that did this to, to, to stick with it, to, to, to enshrine the, the, the beliefs, to enshrine the, the, the identity of the narod above all others and to, and, and, and to fossilize any kind of normal cultural, sexual, <laughs> musical life um, <coughs> uh, of the kind that, uh, that, that, that people enjoy. Um, there's that pressure. There's the pressure of sort of technology being blinded and blitzed by by the sort of pornographication of society, the the the, uh, the, the dazzling of the latest mobile phone, the latest application, the latest thing. This is extremely cogent. I mean, the more desperate societies get, the more these things count for something. Um, you know, this is a huge issue in Mexico. Um, you know, if you're living next door to Uncle Sam, you're going to want to uh, you're going to want all those gadgets, even though you can't afford them. And, and that's certainly a huge impact on Bosnia. A lot of people get frustrated. A lot of young people who do have this thing, you know, we must be aware of what happened. We must carry the candle of what happened. We must reckon with what happened. The young Serbs particularly want to question their parents about what they did, um, and Croats too. I mean, we, we've let the Croats off the hook a bit here because, um, you know, what, what happened in Herzegovina was in many ways a, you know, a pale but unmistakable imitation of what the Serbs were doing. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and atrocious it was too. But I think, you know, you have all the pressures of gadgetization, Twitterization, sexualization for eight and nine year old girls. This is all, you know, sort of extremely, it's actually stronger in, in Bosnia because of this kind of identity vacuum. Um, but then you do have people who, you know, young people who, who, who are very keen to to reconcile without reckoning and and you know I mean for instance Tornopoli has a football team now which is mixed uh, Muslim and Serb uh, they're quite good actually um, uh, but the condition of that is we just don't talk about the war now that's okay for the Tornopoli football team it means they can play it's better to have Tornopoli AFC than not but it doesn't do very much for the people on the outskirts of St. Louis, Missouri, or, or, or Hamburg, who, without whom, you know, a reckoning is their is their their mental and emotional implosion, and you know that's an issue that the youth of Bosnia is very much having to sort of grapple with. You know, at at what price this reckoning? Um, I'm of the view, uh, although you know, tentatively that you've got to go through it, that you've got to have some sort of, you've got to confront the truth in the, fa un, in the face, understand what happened and come to terms with it, and there has to be movement from the side of the perpetrators in order to have reconciliation. But a lot of young people don't agree with that. Um, they, they, I mean, the, the guy I talked about who was in the, in the gang in San Francisco, he's now in, in a motorcycle club. Um, and because he lives there all the year round, most of them of the diaspora, they come back for the summer. Um, you know, most of his friends are Serbs in the bike in the bike club, and uh, he's better off just being in that bike club and just getting on with his, riding his motorcycle. Um, it's a it's a difficult one. It's a high wire, I, um, but but and and there's a lot of tension between young people, also in the diaspora. Um, uh, there's a there's a there's a, there's a, 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 a very interesting guy in St. Louis, Missouri, from Srebrenica 
who talks about a lot of tension within the young people in, in, among the 80,000 strong community in that city in, in Missouri um, between, you know, as it were, the ones who, who want to keep this alive and going and the ones who just want to get on and be American. And add, there was a Russia question as well. Russia. <laughs> well, Russia was obviously, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia did its ethnic orthodox thing during the war. Uh, 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 sort of weekend, weekend gunners would come to the edge of Sarajevo and have a pop at the, you know, at the, at the Balia filth in the city and so on. Um, and uh, and Russia during the war was. Um, you know, it was, was there with the vetoes and things on the Security Council. But, um, but I, at the moment, I don't get the feeling that, I mean, Russia has a very strong interest in the Balkans, in the criminal empire, that the young man, you know, I'm very grateful for you raising that. Uh, I mean, the Russian mafia is huge, and the Raffaisen, I better be careful. Can I scrub that? And Western banks are very anxious to, uh, to, um, to make sure that the money keeps going round, as are the Russian banks. Uh, so there's a, there's a criminal interest. Uh, I don't know about the Russian diplomatic service in the Balkans. I don't think they are. I mean, I think Russia has so much on, you know, on its on its plate elsewhere. Uh, I don't see them as a major player. Obviously, they back Serbia's entry into the European Union um, and so on. But I I think it's the, the the dialogue is now mostly between Belgrade and Brussels, Zagreb and Brussels. Uh, sorry, even Brussels less so because Bosnia is so far behind because it's such a kind of dysfunctional so nation state doesn't fit the EU bill. Um, um, I haven't heard, I mean, I'm not aware of Russia becoming majorly involved in the SAA, the, the, the track entries of Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia into the European Union. I, you know, I think they've got other things to worry about at the moment. But I'm, I, if, I mean, you probably know more about this than I do, because you wouldn't have asked the question. Uh, but I'm not aware of Russia exerting the kind of influence at the moment that it did during the war. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. So yes. I think well, we, have, we can squeeze one more question. And I think it befits to, to end where we started with the question no, session. It's not really a question. Absolutely. I just want to, to say something about demonizing the Serbs. I don't think it would be right for anyone to demonize the nation. There is no collective responsibility. There is, there is no such thing as collective responsibility. There are many cases, as, as Ed said, that Serbs fought on, in, in, on side of the Bosnian army. There were Muslims who were fighting on Serbs in Serbs' army. I know, I know that fact. But there are, there are cases. For example, a Serbian man offered me a key of his Munich flat a month before the war to take my family. He was a Serb, but he wanted to save my family. My closest relative was saved in a similar fashion like Anne Frank by a Serbian friend in Banja Luka. She was hiding her for, I think, 45 days in her flat in Banja Luka, risking her life and life of her family to save my relative and her two kids. So no one should really demonize themselves, and I don't think anyone does in general. But the problem is that many of them wouldn't admit that minority of them maybe did it on their behalf. And they maybe just went along without even thinking what they were doing. And they can't say they didn't, they didn't know for concentration camps because they used to come to, to the camp. The villagers used to the camp, come to the camp and take prisoners to do their work on, on the field. 
So they did know that we did exist. Regarding young generation in Bosnia, I think the best would be summoned by words of 19-year-old girl. I attended a mass funeral a few years ago, and she said, the politicians said the war is over, but for me it's not, because I still dream about my father who I never see. And as long as I dream about him, the war hasn't ended. And regarding the, the youngsters in Bosnia, I know for the fact that OSCE organization, after the war, has put a ban on history, the teaching of history in Bosnia. For example, children under the age of 15 don't learn anything about the war. They are banned. At the age of 15, the war is referred to as an unfortunate event, as, as if there is fortunate war, for God's sake. So as long as we don't, as, we are, as long as we are not honest with each other and say, look, this has been done. Of course, there, there were atrocities on other sides. I'm not, nobody can deny that. Many Serbians lost their lives. Innocent Serbians, they lost their lives. But it wasn't organized as it, as, as it appears to be from Serbian sides to organize concentration camps and mass rapes. Thank you very much. Well, sir, if I, if I answered you, I would not be doing what I wanted to do and want to do, which is to give you the last word. Okay, uh, so um, just uh, to close the session, I just would like to make a, just a small comment, if I may. Um, when we uh, started the tonight's event, I, I was mentioning this 20 years since the beginning of the war, since the beginning, uh, since your first book about Bosnia. And uh, actually, as we've talked, I remember Stanley Cohen, who writes about war crimes and actually reckoning, and uh, who says that actually these crimes, they do not follow historical time. In other words, time doesn't erode the pain, the hurt, it's there. And that comes very strongly in your speech, uh, from your book, uh, also in tonight's discussion. But I would also add, speaking about globalization, actually travels. It's fascinating when you write where this hurt has traveled. You know, you're talking about the states, uh, all other Euro European countries, uh, communities here in UK, Norway, all over the place. Um, and uh, in a sense, speaking sort of in a uh, uh, at a university where we teach about these issues, I think um, your work will speak uh, beyond reportage. Uh, it will speak directly to these debates in terms of how do you confront the mass atrocity. And uh, the, I think the, the perspective on reckoning and unreckoning that you offer really offers a completely different way from from the language, if you like, the language of closure, reconciliation, but it also speaks to the nature of war and the sense that uh, in this sort of what some theories call new war, you, you have something that's called sort of war to peace continuum. You don't really know when wars end and actually they continue and sort of continue relentlessly in many different ways. So thank you very much uh, for speaking tonight, for answering all kinds of questions. 
and also to the audience for participating and for asking challenging questions that uh, Ed, I think, uh, answered very comprehensively. The publisher is uh, outside. Uh, you can uh, buy his book or his books uh, on Mexico as well. Um, thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. And the book is about nothing if not the face among us, the people, the person on the bus with a foreign accent. You never know. It's them. <laughs>